Well, hello and welcome to the Story Hive podcast. Yes, it's me at the Story Hive, the home of amazing audio stories. And our first story today is exactly that, because it is amazing. And as you're probably guessed by now, it's from our True Stories collection. So it's absolutely true. You've probably got a friend like this, the guy you're about to hear, and what happened to him. And I can't believe, even to this day, that this story actually happened. So let's get on with it. Here it comes, the story, The Healer. Now, for a good few years in the mid-1980s, I worked with a saxophonist called Rick. He was an utterly wonderful and amazing person. There's lots of stories from those times. And one day I may be right then. They're all rather silly. And in our time playing together, we met a very wide and interesting bunch of people. Now, one time we ran into these two guys, Aidan and Mike. They were businessmen who'd inherited their family companies from their fathers. And Mike had ambitions to start a record label, but after a lot of talk, it didn't really come to anything. However, I ended up becoming pretty good friends with Aidan. He was a very sharp and witty guy, always nicely dressed. He owned a clothing company and he was very comfortably off. He drove a red Ferrari, which he once nearly crashed with me in it. And that's a story for another time. Now, one of Aidan's passions was trials biking until one day he had a very bad spill in an amateur race. And the outcome of which was he suffered a neck injury. And the poor guy was in agony. He could hardly move his head. The movement range very small. And I remember him coming round to me and my girlfriend's flat in a neck brace, and he was in so much pain. Now, as I told you, he was pretty wealthy. So he went to the best doctors around, Harley Street, top consultants. He even flew to America at one point to a private clinic. But despite all of his best efforts, no one could fix him. He'd been tested, x-rayed, experimental, drug treatments, manipulated. He had literally tried everything. Now, at this point, and I feel importantly I have to add this fact, Aidan was a very down-to-earth bloke. And despite his wealth, he had very simple tastes. He wasn't flashy or a show-off. He was confident and also a bit quiet in a nice way and easygoing, which is probably why him and I got on so well. And so the months passed and he regularly visited me and we went out to lunches and dinners and gigs, just like friends do, like we'd always done. And my girlfriend at the time said to me he was one of the kindest men she'd ever met. And he really was. He was always bringing her flowers and me shirts and jackets from his company. In short, he was a really good and decent friend. But throughout it all, he was in pain all the time. Him functioning after a fashion and with constant difficulty. He was always having treatments, pain injections, tissue massages, manipulations. And he'd often arrive to meet me in a neck collar. But whatever he did, nothing could fix it. There he'd sit, stiffly wincing if he moved too quickly. It was painful to watch, to be honest. And he was always in distress, I could tell. And it completely blighted his life. And if I'm honest, it was just tragic. And then one day he came round and he told me he met an old girlfriend of his and she'd recommended someone to him. But then he rolled his eyes saying she was a bit of a hippie and he knew a spiritual healer. I think he thought it was all a load of other bollocks chanting the hippie crystal shit. His exact words, I remember them. But then he asked me what I thought. So I replied, I didn't think it could make anything worse. And if I was honest, I thought it was all a bit nonsensical too. I'd read stuff and it 
always rather seemed dodgy to me. And much as I liked and I believe in the idea of alternative therapies, some of them were just a bit too out there even for me. Many having those stories attached of con men promising miracle cures and taking lots of money off desperate and often gullible folk. But I tried to stay open-minded. And so I added, maybe it wouldn't hurt to visit. I knew he was a smart guy. He could see through any nonsense. And so very reluctantly, and I mean reluctantly, he called the number. And he used my landline phone. There were no mobile phones back then. And it had a speakerphone attachment. So as he spoke, I could listen in. And it was really interesting. It turned out this healer lived in Devon. And the woman on the phone said Mr. Trevelyan charged £30 for the actual session. But the initial healing consultation was free. And most clients only needed the one session. So Aidan looked at me and he gave a huge shrug and said he'd like an appointment, which he duly booked for the following week. And then he put the phone down and asked me, would I come with him? And I said, of course I would. The poor guy needed my support. And plus, if I'm really honest, it sounded really intriguing. I am, if nothing else, eternally curious. And so it was. The following week, we set off. And me pointing out it was only 30 quid, which didn't seem that much of a rip-off. I had no idea what this type of thing cost. And I did wonder, however, was there maybe more money later involved? And neither of us was totally convinced. But I think because of that thought, even though we were feeling dubious about it, we thought, let's give it a go. The day of the appointment arrived. Now, as you're pretty aware, Ferraris are pretty quick cars. And I must say it was a fun journey. Two lads on a road trip in a beautiful sports car, apart from the reason for it. Now, sadly, back then, I didn't have a driving license. Yep, another story for another time. So poor old Aidan, with his bad neck, had to do all the driving. But still, on we flew along, and neither of us really talking about it. But I knew just how incredibly desperate he'd become. The fact we were even going, a testament to that. But I knew the pain he was experiencing was just unbearable. Painkillers not really giving him much respite. But as we drove along, I knew him seeing a spiritual healer was probably the last straw. Now, just to reiterate, Aidan really wasn't in anything spiritual or alternative. As I said, he was a very down-to-earth guy. If anything, I was the one that was way more open. But on we drove, whizzing down the motorway, and I read the map, no Google Maps or sat-navs then. Until after a couple of stops for petrol and tea and food, we left the main road, and we headed for a small town, the outskirts of. We weren't really that far from the seaside, and I said we should visit once the appointment's over, until we eventually arrived after a few more lefts and rights and turnings, and we found the house that the address Aidan had been given. It was in a pretty nondescript set of streets, 1940s pebble-dashed, typical semi-detached houses with neat front gardens and hedges and little drives, very middle-class looking suburbia in fact. And the healer's house was in a small cul-de-sac at the far end and was in fact the least tidy looking place, the paint on the front door peeling and the garden slightly messy. So we parked up and we went and rang the doorbell and now the door was opened by a very friendly middle-aged lady in a drab looking cardigan who invited us inside. We were taken into a front room that again was slightly shabby. It was neat and tidy but with fading furniture. It kind of looked the sort of place a poor old age pensioner would live. 
very old-fashioned and decor terms, you know, dark wallpaper, flowery carpet. And she asked Gaydon to fill out a form, and then she asked if we'd like some tea, which duly arrived in small bone china cups with some biscuits. Not very new age. The whole thing just was odd. And then a man came into the room. He was huge, six foot four at least, and broad, with a huge bushy beard and sort of wild hair. And he sort of lumbered in with a thick cable-knit jumper and shapeless trousers. He looked like a fisherman straight off a boat. He was very shy, and he introduced himself as James, his voice soft, his accent thick with a Devon twang. And Aidan was wearing his neck collar, and so James said, could he take it off please and give it to me? And then he asked Gaydon to follow him. And they both went out into the hallway, the lady following him. And I heard them talking. Now, remember, it was a beautiful day. And I looked out the window at the bright sunshine. And then I asked the lady who reappeared, how far away was the beach? And she smiled and pointed, saying it was only ten minutes at best, just a short walk. So then I asked how long Aidan would be. And she said, around an hour. So I checked the time and said... I'd go and stretch my legs, as well as seeing the beach. I wanted to be out of that drab, slightly depressing room. It was fine and clean, mind you, you know, spick and span. But it was all just a bit weird. It was vaguely uncomfortable and a bit musty, if I'm honest. Not a place for me to be sitting on a glorious afternoon. And so, off I went. And making sure I knew the route back, I found a nice cafe on the seafront. And I sat outside and had an ice cream. It was lovely. Sitting, looking out the sea gentle hiss of the waves on the pebbles and blue sky and seagulls. There was actually quite a few people around, busy for the middle of the week. It was a Wednesday, I think. And so eventually I checked my watch and I went back. And ringing the doorbell, the lady let me back in. And now I sat on that hard settee for about another 15 minutes until Aidan came back into the room. He looked white as a sheet. And I was quite concerned, but before I could say anything, he held his hand up, and indicating I just shouldn't say anything. Now, the lady had left the room earlier, and then she now returned, and she gave him a small piece of paper, which he read, and very slowly he gave her three ten-pound notes. Now we said thank you, and then we left. Aidan still saying nothing. As soon as we were outside, I said, what happened? But he quietly replied, I'll tell you in a while. And so we got back into the car, drove off, and about ten minutes later we found a parking space on the front. Now we both stood on the road that ran by the sea. And Aidan, he just seemed dazed, confused almost. We stood there for a little while, until eventually we started strolling, along in silence, and until he started to speak. He'd followed the James guy into what looked like a consulting room, he said, Old wood panelling on the walls, a battered examination table thing and a chair and an antique wooden desk. And then James had explained to Aidan how it worked. He said he was what was called a channeler, in that he let a departed spirit take over his body so he could perform what he termed procedures if necessary. It was a doctor, he said, from the 17th century, and he'd be using spirit instruments if he needed them. Now, I could only imagine what was going on in Aidan's head as he heard that. He probably had to stifle a sarcastic what-a-load-of-bollocks comment. Wow! But then, Aidan stopped and looked directly at me. 
James had asked him to sit on the examination table, so he went and sat down. And now James moved to the antique desk, dropped into a chair, closed his eyes, and his head just moved forwards. Five minutes passed, Aidan said, and the bloke was just sitting there, breathing very low and slightly rattling like snoring. And that was when it happened. The guy appeared to physically change in front of him. He couldn't explain it, but he seemed to almost shrink. Not exactly physically, but in some other way he couldn't fully describe. The face got thinner. It was still James, he said. But it was almost as if it wasn't James. He could make out a presence, a shadow almost, overlaid on top of James. A minute or two passed, and then he lifted his head. And Aidan swore it was as if he was looking at someone else, a thinner, smaller person. And now James stood up. And as he came over, he was moving differently, lighter, more graceful for such a large man. It was weird, Aidan said. But then he spoke. And his voice was completely different. It was sort of very peculiarly phrased English, refined, well-spoken, brisk in manner. And he said he was Dr. Richard Compton. And he rolled his sleeves up and went to a small sink in the corner and started washing his hands. Now, Hayden, he just said he, he didn't know what to do or think, so he just sat there. Until this Richard James guy now came over and very gently started running his fingers around Aidan's neck and shoulder. And this took around five minutes, him very gently and carefully feeling around, until he tutted suddenly. Yes, he said, I see the problem. And now he looked straight into Aidan's eyes and said, You have an occluded nerve, sir. I'm afraid I'll have to operate. And Aidan said he was completely freaked at this, until the Richard James guy held his hands out, which were completely empty, and then he said, I'll use these instruments. This was just crazy stuff now. But he didn't know what to say or do, so he just said, OK. And now he watched as Richard James now seemed to be using both hands, holding his fingers like pincers almost. And then he felt him push something into the side of his neck, sharp. And Aidan looked at me and said, I swear... I swear I could feel something inside of me, probing around, moving deep, like a scalpel or something. It was really uncomfortable, stinging and cutting. Even though he could see the guy's hands were empty, it was just his fingers. There was nothing that could produce that sharp sensation. Well, I didn't know what to say. It just sounded mad. There I was, on a seafront, with a very down-to-earth, no-nonsense, virulent, anti-spiritual, hippie-shit, bollocks-as-he-turned-it kind of guy, him now telling me about spirits, invisible instruments, and feeling something moving around inside him. This was really strange. But Aidan continued. The Richard James guy suddenly stopped and said, Aha! At which point, Aidan said he felt a really sharp stabbing pain, just brief, but absolutely excruciating, so much he yelled out. But then, he said, The pain disappeared in an instant completely all of it and now he could 
turn his neck freely with no agony. And he said he sat there just not believing it, just frightened. But the pain was completely gone. He knew his neck could move normally. Remember, this guy had spent thousands of pounds. He consulted top doctors, had scans and x-rays the works. He'd even gone to America. And now in some slightly shabby, semi-detached house in a small back street in Devon, he'd been cured by the spirit of a 17th century doctor. But then Aidan said the Richard James guy had very gently started moving his neck backwards and forwards, round in a circle. And it was true. The pain was completely gone. He knew. He, he, he couldn't feel a thing. And best of all, he could see the guy's hands. They were completely empty. There was no blood. There was nothing that could cause that stabbing, cutting sensation. And plus, there wasn't a mark on him. His skin was untouched. So he sat there, and Richard James was just nodding and muttering under his breath. And then he went back to the sink and washed his hands, for he sat down again behind the desk. And now he looked up and said, I think the treatment's concluded, good sir. I wish you well. And now sitting back, his head fell forwards. It was weird, Aidan said. He just sat there. He didn't know what to do. Very carefully, he moved his head around. But the pain was gone. A few more minutes passed, and suddenly, very slowly, James began to sit up in his chair. The other vague presence Aidan had seen, the impression of that other person, completely gone. And he said James looked absolutely normal again, but he also looked absolutely bewildered and knackered, his face all puffy and tired. And he slowly asked Aidan how it had gone, and Aidan said he felt great. And James was still very sleepy, and now simply said in this thick Devon accent, I'm glad. And then he said, if you'd kindly go out and see Margaret, I'm just going to sit here for a while. And he held his large hand out. And Aidan got up and stepped forward and shook it, which again, he said, felt so different to the hands he'd felt examining his neck. These hands were large and fleshy, not like the thin bony ones he'd felt on his skin. And so now he left the room and he came back into where we were. And that's when I'd next seen him, his face white. And now I knew why. I mean, what a thing to experience. And as we walked now, I could see his colour fully returned. And he was moving easily, looking around, a huge smile now on his face. And so we went and had fish and chips. And of course, we talked about what had happened on the way home, and for weeks after. But the pain never returned. He was completely fixed. But he didn't change. He was still constantly trying to rationalise it, some kind of chiropractor trick or something. But there was nothing he said that really made any sense. He dismissed the spirit aspect completely. And I agreed there wasn't a good or rational explanation to be had. And as for me, I don't know, don't ask me. I've got no idea. How did James do what he did? If it was a con, it was 30 quid. It wasn't exactly hugely profitable. But there was one thing I knew. Here was a guy who wore a neck collar, who winced when he moved, a man in constant pain who took very strong painkillers just to function, who couldn't turn his neck with almost screaming. But he was fixed, completely. That, that was a fact. And time passed, and we didn't really mention it again. 
And many years later, we lost contact in the way that people sometimes do. But I never forgot that day. The day something extraordinary happened in a small back room in a house by the seaside. The day a kind friend of mine lost his pain. And to be honest, that's really all that mattered. The rest, well, that's up to you, whatever you believe. As for me, I, I've got no answers. I really don't. I know it sounds like I'm repeating myself, but you have to understand what you just heard actually happened. And personally, I still can't believe it, but I was there. And exactly as we described it, that's what occurred. Now, moving on from that story to another very charming story. Again, a story in this case that did actually happen to me, Phil Ryan, the author. And of course, it's the kind of story that you may need a box of tissues for, because it's called The Good Dog. Now, just for reminder's sake, in other parts of the book, you may recall that I already mentioned earlier that back in the 80s, as a young man, I joined a local search and rescue team as a hobby and as a way of keeping fit. Now, one of the things we did was we carried out emergency cover at sort of public and private events. We had a medical tent, an ambulance, some vehicles, equipment, firefighting gear and radio. So, in effect, we kind of looked after people at these sorts of things, giving first aid and other stuff. Now, one such event we were asked to cover was held in King's Cross in London. It being a large street festival that ran for a weekend and it involved a small local green space and quite a few of the surrounding streets. And they had countless stalls and activities and displays. Now, we wore high-vis jackets with emergency volunteers on the back and we looked very official with our radios and uniforms and badges. Now, surrounding that green space was a very large council estate. It's a mixture of tower blocks and little low-built houses. And as I was on patrol, my radio went off and I was asked to meet one of my colleagues back at our base centre. So off I went. It turned out that a local resident, a very sweet old lady, had accidentally locked herself out of her house, and she'd arrived at our tent in quite a lot of distress. Now, handily and recently, I'd actually done a course on disabling locks and gaining entry into buildings, a lot of which, by the way, is just drilling the locks and the hinges out. It's not high-tech safe-cracking. But that was why they'd called me. So with my colleague Steve, we grabbed a tool bag and went back with her to what turned out to be a small house around the corner. On the way, she said she left the keys on the kitchen table and then, in her haste to leave, had just pulled the front door to, just as she remembered her keys. Now her neighbour, another old lady, said she'd seen us and she thought we were the police and that's why she'd come to our tent and that used to happen an awful lot. But anyway, we were only a five minutes away, so... I saw to my delight as I saw the house, she'd left an upstairs window open. So I got straight on my radio, I asked for the Land Rover to come round and bring a ladder. It was only a two-storey 60s looking build. And in no time at all the lads arrived and I'd climbed inside, found her keys and I led her back in. Now obviously we were all rather pleased and she looked really happy, but then they said they'd head back. But I could see she was still quite upset. So I said I'd just stay for a few minutes and just check and then I'd come back to base. You see, our training taught us that often elderly people would put a brave face on whatever had happened to them, but they could go into shock and even faint if they weren't properly monitored. 
which I know sounds dramatic or far-fetched, but it really isn't. Now, you've got to remember, when she was in around her 70s, but even though she seemed happy, I just wanted to check. She'd obviously been upset and thrown by the whole thing. But as I talked to her, to be honest, she seemed pretty okay. And if anything, she just seemed a bit lonely. But again, I'd seen this before, other local events. But she was still shaken, although she was relieved. But then, by way of thanking me, she asked me if I wanted a cup of tea. So I sat in the tiny kitchen as she fussed around. And then I saw a lovely picture of a black Labrador. It was a really nice photograph. It was large in a frame. And I commented on it. And that's when she told me what I'm about to tell you. His name was Bramley, like the apple. And she said her Jim had brought him home after buying him off a bloke, you know, at work. And Jim had worked in the dustbin, she said, for the council, but he'd passed on ten years ago. A good man, kind and hard-working, she said. Bit of a looker, too. But Bramley, well, he'd been a lovely pup, she said. He'd always wanted cuddles and affection. He'd followed her everywhere. And she'd had to take early retirement after her lungs had started playing up. Apparently she'd been a school dinner lady. But then she added conspiratorially, and she rolled her eyes. She'd been a very heavy smoker. And that was something I could still hear in a slightly crackling, throaty voice. But she'd been glad to have Bramley around the place. He was a good boy, she said. And as she said it, she touched the picture. What a good boy he was. Do you know, she said, his favourite place to go, Regent's Park. It was only a short bus ride up to Baker Street. Then we'd just nip round the corner. And he'd go mad, she said, running around like the wind. But he always came back. He never let her out of his sight. In fact, he would always stop and look for her, just checking she was coming along. And then he'd bark, and off he'd go again, chasing his tail and jumping about. Now his favourite toy, apparently, was a blue rubber ball that Jim had got him on Christmas, and she said he loved it. And the blooming thing had one of those squeaky things, and it nearly drove her mad. But Bramley couldn't stop playing with it. But she said then she couldn't deny him anything, because he was just such a good dog. Apparently Jim had taken him out every night before bedtime to do his business, she said. And they had a little tiny patch of grassy yard out the back where he used to like to sit in the sun. But it was his park walks. They were the things, she said. He loved them. And he always knew. She only had to look at his lead, she said. And he'd come and put his head on her knee. And then he'd make a funny little sort of grumbling sound, like snoring. He didn't sound like a dog. And then she pointed to a place on the wall and that's where his lead had used to be and as she said it I could see her face and it fell slightly but she recovered anyway she said he'd nudge her hand very gently just constantly and then he'd very carefully get a skirt in his mouth and he'd gently pull not hard or nothing just gentle but she said he'd tug at me and he'd look at the door and back and that was it It eventually pulled me towards the front door almost, making his funny little noises. So I got up and I get my coat on and his tail would be wagging away, whacking me legs. It was soft though, not hard. And you know, rain or shine, out we'd go. And he was always very good on his lead. He never ran ahead or anything. He stayed close, always watching. And Jim had taught him to sit and everything. Now, apparently, he was a pedigree. Well, according to the bloke they got him off at work. And now she poured me some more tea and I looked at the picture again. And I could see her face, slightly sad. I lost him two years ago, the love, she said. He had the cancer. And her voice slightly broke then. My lovely good lad. But then she seemed to cheer up again and smile. Well, 
he saved my life, you know. So I said, how? She said, well, do you remember last year we had that terrible winter? Do you remember? It was freezing, it was. Well, I'd done some washing early in the day and I'd had it out on the back of the line, but it was just too damp, so I brought it in. I mean, towels, they're soaking wet. I didn't know what to do with them. And I looked around the room. It was a nice little kitchen. It was bright. It looked like it had just been freshly painted. But then I guessed by the kind of simplicity of the furnishings and fittings, she didn't have a ton of money. I didn't actually see a tumble dryer. But she carried on. So what do I do? I get the electric heater out and I hung the towels on them, didn't I? And now she gave a cackling, coughing laugh. <laughs> Off I went to bed and that's when it all happened. You know when you wake up, you know the way you sometimes do, you're not sure where you are? Well, it was terrible because there was smoke everywhere and I sat up and tried the light, but it didn't work. I couldn't see a thing. Couldn't see a thing. And then I felt him. And then I stopped and I must have looked puzzled. Ramley, she said. I could feel him. I know it sounds mad, but his little wet nose and I could feel him tugging at me nighty, like he used to, gentle. And he pulled me forwards. And then she heard his squeaky ball and he led her out the door. And then she said, we're out on the landing and I could feel him warm and soft against my leg. His tail sort of just bashing backwards and forwards. And then we went down the stairs and there was smoke everywhere. I couldn't see a thing, but that little ball kept squeaking. And eventually we got to the front door. I could feel it. I could feel it. It was just like he used to do, tugging me along. And then I got outside and I don't know what else to say. Well, I just sat there, as you'd imagine, and nodded and she cackled again. <laughs> Mad, innit? <laughs> you probably think, I'm nuts. My little poor boy, being gone two years. But that is what happened, as God is my witness. He saved me, my good boy. And luckily some taxi driver, well, he was dropping off round the corner and he saw the smoke and he called the fire brigade. You know, they're just round the corner up on the um, high road. And I'd seen that because the local fire crew had been next to our tent out on the display area. Now, I'd actually done quite a bit of fire training myself. And there's one thing you learn very quickly, and that is smoke that kills people. Fire, yeah, but smoke suffocation cuts all the oxygen off especially for an old lady with bad lungs she wouldn't have stood a chance and now she waved her hand airily the council were very good mind look painted the whole place and mr singh from the shop lovely man sent his boy round to finish it all off but she looked at me now but it was my bramley he saved my life i know you probably think i lost me marbles but he did so i said i didn't think she was mad and just had another cup of tea, because she was clearly fine now. But I loved hearing her that day, just telling me about Bramley, because memories of my own dogs as a child came into my head. And of course, who could resist her little tale of rescue, which she clearly believed, and why not? I always say there's more to this life than we can see and explain. And then my radio went off, and I was needed back at base for a patrol, so I made my goodbyes, and I left her sitting there. But as you can imagine, listening to me now, I never forgot Bramley, her good boy. And whatever you believe, I know one thing. And that is, I believe that some angels have furry coats, really. I think if we're lucky in life, we get to experience these kind of moments. And I can tell you, that little moment has stayed with me and will stay with me for the rest of my life. So thanks for coming to the Story Hive podcast today. 
And do remember, we've got lots more coming your way. Do follow us on social media, maybe say hello on Facebook or even see what we get up to on TikTok. So until next week, as always, I'm going to leave you with happy listening.